Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have J.M. Berger and Kelsey Atherton, and we're discussing dystopia. So if you're like me, and I, I'm assuming everyone else's experience, you've been in quarantine for about, hard quarantine for about three months, um, in the last maybe one or two months, depending on where you're living, you've kind of left the house. But if you're like me, you have a six-month-old beard and long hair and you have a mane and you're just trying to and you're just struggling to figure out what is this what is this new state of things why does 2020 have to be like that um and so uh part of that was uh, i started looking for scholars analysts people who had not just done analytic work and analytic reporting and long form scholarly work, but also people who have, you know, looked at the culture and the creative environment. So um, JM has done a lot of work on dystopia. He's also done, um, he was on our show about the Turner Diaries. So one of the fictional works that features in uh, white nationalist narrative building. Um, And then Kelsey, on the other hand, has done a lot of work on, you know, drones, uh, nuclear weapon development, (laughs) and a bunch of um, stuff like that. And he's also has written a lot of science fiction. Um, I forget the name of the article, but we'll we'll have it in the post. It's about um, what happens when you're in a plane and a nuclear weapon goes off and you can't land. So happy stuff like that. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) sorry. Um, So please welcome JM and Kelsey. Hey, guys. Howdy. Pleasure to be here. Um, so, uh, off the top, just to start off with, I kind of curious how you guys are doing, like, how are you, how are you handling the current dystopia? Um, is, is the word or phrase dystopia even sort of appropriate to describe our current moment? Uh, well, I can go, um, First, I imagine uh, Berger has some more depth to this, but um, I'm doing, you know, okay with an asterisk, which I think is about as good as anything gets in this um, in this year. It feels um, there are parts of being alive and being aware of the world right now that feel acutely dystopian. Um, but it doesn't feel sort of like a fully formed, fully realized, fully um, almost intentional kind of deliberate suck. It feels more like the precursor to that. Um, there's a term I'm going to borrow from from Adam Elkis, which has uh, floated around in a few places um, called the Omni Crisis, where it feels like a lot of what being alive right now is is watching things break and then the the imagined dystopia is when they're put together horribly afterwards um and so that's sort of how i'm sitting in this yeah i mean i think there's a a lot of truth to that i mean when we think about the dystopian genre you know for the sake of narrative clarity and and usually reflecting an author's preference what you tend to get is a story about a society that is fundamentally broken for one big reason. (laughs) And so, you know, there's one big thing that's wrong. It's the hunger games or it's soil and green, you know, and, and that thing is 
representative of all the problems that happen in that society. And I think you can make a case for certain things in our current society that, that would fit that. But when you're living through it, it feels uh, much more like things are, are just falling apart uh, in every direction. And uh, one of the, uh, you know, prior to the show, one of the people on Twitter who was asking about, you know, when we put out the call for questions, brought up uh, children of men, which is interesting because there's not so much in its its writing and, and and the thematic content, but more in how it's filmed and presented. I thought it actually kind of captured the feeling of living in this current time because as a, as a cinematic experience, watching that movie is just watching like things falling apart in every direction. And there's some, every few minutes, something new comes from a new direction and it's just, you know, a new disaster, a new, a new blow up. And uh, that, that feeling of sort of like urgent chaos, I thought, uh, you know, was, was a way that that movie really kind of reflected what's going on right now. And uh, the question was based on an article, which I thought was, maybe I, I didn't totally agree with the take that was in the article, but I really felt like the visceral experience of watching children of men really felt like it had some similarity to, to how things feel right now. That's kind of interesting that you, you guys both kind of circle around this idea of constant crisis of going from one crisis to the next, but at the same time, you, you kind of mentioned the Hunger Games and other media. So when it comes to reality, when it comes to sort of looking at dystopia fiction, dystopian fiction, and looking at our reality, is it, does fiction sort of work well when it's exaggerated, when it is presented in a Hunger Games style, you know, the society has absolutely collapsed, there's people with weird names, they're shooting bows and arrows at each other, or is it more effective when like produced as the children of men where it's very, when you watch that movie, it's, it, it, it looks and feels real. Right. So it's like, Oh, people can't have children. There's pollution. There's uh, extremist beliefs. People hate refugees. There's pollution. And it, it feels like reality just turned up a notch. Whereas like hunger games is, it feels like reality and highly exaggerated or, not even reality. So I think um, one of the things that that stands out, um, I, I think Children of Men is absolutely like where I wanted to like start talking about this, um, is because Children of Men has a feeling and has had a feeling since it was made um, that it could be about five years away, um, and like there's a lot there's specific details it wouldn't actually line up that way, but the nature of the world is such that it is one where things are as the present, but worse. Um, the crises are familiar. The technology is familiar. The kind of uh, the government throwing off its responsibility to solve a problem and instead offering like euthanasia pills isn't a close analog to anything, but it feels so, so bleak and so minimal um, in the kind of solution that can be offered to the problem, that it has the weight of immediacy on it. Um, I think it feels prescient too, because like there hasn't really been a ton of political work imagining um, 
how to disarm radicals or how to um, make immigration not a crisis that activates um, uh, extreme elements. Um, whereas like Hunger Games takes place, there is an unspecified calamity and like they get into it a little bit more later, but by and large, Hunger Games is a received world that you know is built on the continental US, but sometime in the future. And you don't, you know that things are bad, but have been bad in this specific way in a while. And you don't feel the collapsing of the present into that. Um, and so it's a kind of, you get to tell different stories in that way. Um, Hunger Games is the tail end of a path. Uh, Children of Men is sort of the start of one. I think, you know, dystopian fiction, you, there are two kinds of dystopian, well, uh, there are many different kinds. So one way you can break down dystopian stories is that there are stories about the collapse and there are stories where the collapse has been replaced with a, a new reality. And so, you know, we sort of, there's sort of the running joke about dystopias, you know, it's all, they're all set in the not too distant future. In fact, some are set more distant in the future than others. So, and, and it's interesting. Children of Men, I think, as a, as a story of collapse is, is unusually successful in, in really capturing that feeling of, of imminent, urgent decline. Uh, it, whereas a lot of uh, collapse-oriented stories are often less powerful. And what we see in, a lot of times in the genre when they're set a little bit further off into the future or, or conceptually further from where we are in reality. Sometimes they're, you know, I mean, Children and Men is set in, what, like 2027 or something. It's like five years from now. Uh, but, you know, like The Hunger Games is, and, and, and other ones are set, you know, generations after the collapse. And what happens is some kind of new normal has replaced the old normal. And, and then those are often, you know, for authors, I think it's like a really good vehicle if you want to talk about a particular kind of story, if you have a particular issue that bothers you. So a lot of dystopian authors, you know, for the purposes of the book that they're writing are sort of zeroing in on one problem and then showing how that problem extends its tentacles out into the entire world. And arguably, Children of Men doesn't do that. I mean, it captures a... a country that's you know become xenophobic and anarchic and violent and and oppressed but it doesn't the, the proximate cause which really is, is very centrally featured in that movie is infertility is that no babies have been born so that kind of detaches you from a, a story where things are more a progression of the politics that we see and if you want to look at a sort of a comparable example that's pretty interesting you know, we look at The Handmaid's Tale where infertility is also an issue, but it's different. So it's not complete infertility. It's it's a, uh, you know, partial infertility that then allows existing strains of fascism and misogyny to take over society. So the infertility in that case, in that story is, you know, an enabling factor for a social commentary on a particular kind of movement particular kind of anti anti woman misogynist movement, whereas uh, the the infertility issue in children and men is is much more central to the story and like you know it's it's more you know we talked a little bit before 
the show about whether to, you know, whether using zombie stories were kind of a good way to sort of jump off into this. And, and I, I tend to lean against zombie stories as being strictly dystopian because the stories are really, while they're often allegories about humans, they're, they're really highly dependent on zombies, <laughs> you know? So zombies or alien invasions or, or time travel, you know, when you get into those kinds of things, they, they, take you a little bit away from the political content that I think that is really interesting in dystopia. So I would say Handmaid's Tale in, in some ways is a much, has a much clearer political statement and a much more well-developed political statement by virtue of being set further off in the future than, than children of men, which is children of men, I think is amazing and, and powerful, but it's also, it's very visceral and it's very emotional and it's not necessarily very intellectual about what it wants to say about, the society that it's based in. That's kind of interesting that um, you, I kind of want you to explore this point a bit that what really sets a dystopia or a dystopia and narrative away from other narratives is the fact that it's political. So um, that's why we can't really consider world war Z or uh, the walking dead as dystopia, but would you, consider something like neuromancer something that is it shows the world in dereliction it shows the world as corrupt and broken but in neuromancer and sort of some of the other um early 80s works of william gibson he he kind of shows a what looks like a dystopia but he doesn't really try to make a political idea or he doesn't try to express a political idea so in, in your conception of please correct me if i'm wrong what separates a dystopia from everything else is that a dystopia, at least in a narrative form, has to have that political element. It has to be making a political statement. Is that accurate or? I, th I think so, yeah. I mean, and William Gibson has done interviews in which he's said that he did not conceive of Neuromancer as being dystopian. Uh, it's set in a different future that examines trends that kind of move forward, but it's not ultimately sort of looking at a problem. It's not saying there is a problem in this society that needs to be fixed. And arguably, yeah, I mean, clearly I think his more recent work uh, with agency and uh, the peripheral are much more, much more clearly dystopian, um, much more about the societies that we live in now and the societies of the future uh, and how they've gone wrong. When uh, as you, some longtime listeners may remember that uh, one reason that I'm on here talking about dystopia is that I've been plugging away uh, endlessly at a book that is not so far uh, scheduled for publication on the history of the dystopian genre. And one of the things I had to do in order to start working on that book is come up with a definition that put a box around what is dystopia that would limit the field enough that I could write about you know, write about it because I have, you know, uh, more than a thousand dystopian works in the bibliography and I can't read all of them, let alone if there's a broader definition. So I ended up sort of thinking, you know, what, what really defines dystopia as we understand it in its most iconic, uh, forms. And I think that they're generally, they're set in the future of the world, the where we live now, and they describe, developments in society that proceed from things that are happening now and you know and then the most common kind of frame for that is this sort of vaguely defined not too distant future although some of them will go much further so i think dystopia ultimately is like looking to 
is looking to diagnose something that's happening in society now and to say what would happen if this trend that we're seeing now continues and deepens and widens and eventually takes over the world. Yeah, I'd like to um, jump on that because I think one of the things that is uh, sort of fascinating about Neuromancer's place in dystopia and really like um, Neuromancer specifically, but broadly like those early, the early 80s, 90s cyberpunk works that came out is that they are very clearly um, informed by the, the political trends and technological trends of the time. And what has made them read dystopic now is that the trends they were describing continued without change. Um, back in April, I put a piece up on Slate uh, called We're on the Brink of Cyberpunk, um, where I, I argue, right, that one of the things that set that genre in motion was the idea um, of a formal politics being sort of secondary to just a default world of um, market domination and the the shaping of everything through um, sort of faceless companies who could be, you could hack, but you couldn't like protest um, what those powerful entities are doing. Um, like sabotage as a means of recourse, but there's not really a lot of like political mobilization or organization possible there. Um, and when these, and this is, this is I'm expanding a thesis from uh, author uh, Tim Mon that the science fiction of the 80s that set these things in motion was reading the furthest possible extent of the, the whole neoliberal turn. What happens when you assume um, that the role of politics is basically to facilitate and protect markets and everything else falls beyond that. Um, and something at least that seemed really prescient as I was writing that piece was you get a kind of world where like you have hospitals in different states bidding on the black market for uh, personal protective equipment in the middle of a pandemic because the normal function you would imagine of a government coordinating these things was not happening. Um, and so the works that explore this sort of um, market uh, exclusion of um, any kind of meaningful politics read way more dystopian now than when they were cast um, because politics has trended alongside that. I would just uh, add to that. I think there's also something that you can sort of say specifically about Neuromancer in some ways is that there are stories that are set in dystopian worlds that are in a dystopian setting where some of these things happen, but the stories are not primarily concerned with the issue that makes the world dystopian. And I think you could argue that about Neuromancer in, in this kind of context, the way Kelsey was talking about it. And I think that, uh, you know, in contrast, what you, what you see in when you sort of think of the classic, the classic example of a dystopian, uh, dystopian genre piece is that the the system itself is the antagonist in some way so in the hunger games just to pick sort of the low-hanging fruit example uh president snow is ultimately not the antagonist of the hunger games the hunger games themselves the system that supports the hunger games and the games themselves are the are the thing that the protagonists struggle against 
which becomes very clear when you get to the end of the book. And I won't spoil it. And just in case there's some remotely person who's been living on a desert island, the first thing they did is listen to the Loopcast when they got off and they haven't read the Hunger Games yet. But by the end of the book, it's very clear that Snow himself is just a representative of the system that is broken and not uh, not responsible, solely responsible for it. So when you think about this sort of, you know, is a book dystopian and you think about Neuromancer, where, which has a lot of trappings of dystopia and it is, is set in a society that has a lot of dystopian features. The question is, you know, are, are the characters struggling against the system or are they struggling against the backdrop of the system? That's kind of interesting to me because like, it almost seems like that's where the fascination comes from when we as, as readers and as consumers of content vibe like, you know, apocalyptic or dystopian fiction, it's that it's characters that are struggling against the system. But um, what, what is in your view, the fascination with this genre of literature? What is, what makes us sort of, you know, read the hunger games or read neuromancer or read the Turner diaries? Is it, what's the attraction to this, this sort of genre of literature? I think it's a super powerful genre because fighting the system is, can take you to places that you can't get when you're fighting just a regular antagonist, when you're just fighting a villain. Um, You know, you, you really like the most powerful works of dystopian fiction can take you to places of just, incredibly dark places of despair or in in some cases to places where you you're just like your feeling of celebration that the defeat of the system is is enhanced by that i think the despair element is kind of like what really sets off really good dystopian fiction like the running man you can watch the running man and the movie i'm talking about the movie now and uh you know, you could, you get the sort of like, yeah, at the end when, when the whole thing kind of comes down. But, you know, when you read the Hunger Games, it's much more, that's a much more tempered kind of Pyrrhic victory. And then when you read the real classics of the genre, they're really about the defeat of the individual by the system. And they just, it's just such a powerful moment when you get to the end of 1984, or you get to the end of Rollerball, uh, just, you know, to see how individuals struggle against this. I mean, it's just incredibly, uh, it's powerful and dark and, and people go to it because it's a way of taking the things that they fear and, and really kind of articulating the danger of them. And, and that's also, you know, why you get a Turner diaries. That's why you see extremists use this genre and why the genre itself has been responsible for really a lot of negative social effects over the, over the course of its history, because, it's a way of really framing a crisis as, as existential and overwhelming and to mobilize people to fight against the thing that the crisis is defined around. Yeah. And I just want to like, I did, I think I'm absolutely agree with all that. I think one of the things um, that we see, the reason it sticks so much, right. Is the sense that, um, especially when you see like politicians evoke 1984 um, when they know there's a widespread familiarity with it. But the other thing is there isn't a defeating the system within 1984. There's only a preventing when you get to that point. Um, And so the kind of actions 
guides or it encourages or that reference sort of evokes are all preventative strikes against a worse future. Um, and when you set the stakes as um, so high as the just absolutely like shattering ending of 1984, then you can justify a whole lot of less totalizing actions before you get there. Um, and that's, uh, that's sort of, it's not a great, great thing when it's used that way, right? It's very much, because it's a staple because everyone has that fear and no one really has the caution of like, well, maybe we don't actually need to assume it's going to lead to the worst possible outcome and we can figure it out. And there was a study that came out uh, just a couple of a year or two ago, I think, that looked at uh, how these how dystopian fiction affects people and who read it. And it, one of the things that the study found was they gave people a you know a science fiction excerpt to read, and they gave people a chapter from The Hunger Games to read, and then they asked them questions afterwards about their attitudes toward violence against the government. Is it violence against the government ever justified? And people who read the Hunger Games expert said, yes, it is. It's more, they were more likely to say violence against the government could be justified after reading that. And, and, you know, I think that there's a, there's a real, I mean, one of the things that made me want to sort of write a book about the, the genre is that much as I love the genre myself, uh, it's been used in incredibly negative ways going all the way back to the civil war, which is when it first really took off. It was used to justify racism. It was used to justify secession. Then it was used against Chinese deployed against Chinese immigrants in really insidious ways. And, uh, you know, and then we've obviously seen that extremists, uh, see the power in this and, and really use it. So I think there's, to me, as, as somebody who, loves the genre it's a painful question but it's like that there's a painful question about like is this genre really good for society and sort of a related question too about like you know should we be pumping you know adolescents full of this stuff <laughs> before they have fully developed kind of political views uh so you know it's, it's really uh i don't know it's 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 just something that that uh i struggle with That's kind of interesting that you mentioned that like most of the dystopia that I can think of just like off the top of my head without doing sort of, you know, making use of my six library cards or whatever is teen fiction. So Hunger Games, um, there's the one where they have to escape the maze. I think it's just called the maze. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But there's, there's this huge sort of young teen, young adult, genre that's just nothing but dystopias right and so in your view like how does that affect people like you you've already cited the research but it almost seems like you're just targeting this towards millennials younger millennials and zoomers and it's just like it almost seems like it's just kind of priming the pump you know kind of making it seem like dystopia might actually just be inevitable in this case Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's a huge young adult genre presence in other things too, right? You know, there's fantasy and romance and and different kinds of things. But dystopia is one of the biggest young adult genres. And something that I found my observation of, of these young adult dystopias 
is that they are often very vague about the political content. So there are a lot of the tropes of dystopian fiction as we know it as a historical genre, but they're often not making a very clear point. So, you know, The Hunger Games, for instance, Suzanne Collins has argued that it's a anti-war commentary, which, yeah, okay, I can kind of see it after hearing her say that, but that's not certainly what I thought about it when I was reading it. Uh, if you look at the Divergent books, uh, they are just making very kind of vague statements about class that that there's not really like a clear moral to the story. Uh, the Maze Runner is just, I mean, there's there's absolutely no point to the Maze Runner. I couldn't tell you couldn't tell you what that's trying to be about. So you've got all this kind of uh, dystopian kind of uh, mechanics going on that are really just priming kids to be suspicious of the system, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but not necessarily a good thing if it leads to cynicism about the possibility of there being a good system. Whereas, you know, some of the, the older examples and the ones that are more written for adults are usually, they usually have some point. They're like trying to make one point about something. There's a message, there's a clear political message. And, you know, what you have is just a lot of the form and function of dystopia without, without having that kind of content in, in this young adult version. And the other thing I think we get from, um, especially from like either um, the, the versions of dystopia that people are like assigned reading at school or that they'll like pick up at like the age appropriate, like reading level is you get a lot of exposure to futures that suck. Um, and it's not, not that there isn't stuff, not that there aren't teachers out there like assigning things, but I'm struggling to recall a having to ever do reading where it is set in the future. And the problem is one of anything other than like, how do you escape the awful thing this has collapsed to? There aren't really like problems of, of success or anything like it, not like, um, how do you tell, like, it's, it's the next generation problem of um, how do you tell fascinating stories when needs are taken care of, but that's a more interesting problem, and that allows people to think differently about the future, I think, than when you are, well, the thing we have now is as good as it's going to get, and the consequences of this thing falling apart is that it only ever goes worse, um, which is Perhaps a side effect of just the American way of educating on dystopia might be um, an artifact of the dystopia boom that followed the success of Hunger Games um, to young adults. I'm sure that uh, both Divergent and Maze Runner are really uh, second order effects of that. But it's something I think about that they, the, the space for political imagination of better futures is missing and it's one of the things i think also deeply um insidious about where you find um some of the dystopian things that are like well here is how you get to a good future but you have to do race war first right like that's what's haunting about like the the predominance and prevalence of the turner diaries and if you look i mean you know this just to sort of posit that maybe there's something else even more complicated and difficult going on in terms of our society is, is you sort of look at the trajectory of Star Trek. So Star Trek started off as a clearly explicitly utopian project. 
and remained so for some time. Then you got into Deep Space Nine, where you have a war, but there's still a the society is still aspirationally utopian and struggles with the reality of war in that utopian context. Then we go through a couple of reboots, and what we start to see more and more is that you start to see stories first within the regular franchise. You start to see stories about the Federation, something being wrong in the Federation, you know, something wrong with the Federation, with Starfleet. You get the introduction of Section 31, which is the covert, you know, operations, sinister covert operations that lie underneath Star Trek. And then you know, what you see when you get into really the more recent versions of Star Trek, including Discovery and uh, Picard over the last couple of years, is that they are really dystopian stories in a lot of ways. Uh, Discovery kind of messed with you on that and in terms of the sort of the plot arc of the first season. But, uh, you know, ultimately it's a wartime stories and it depicted Starfleet and the operations of Starfleet as being very dystopian. And Picard took the world of Next Generation and really, you know, I mean, in the course of uh, however many story years had passed, 30 or 40, in between uh, Star Trek and Next Generation and, and Picard, the, the world of the Federation went in a deeply dystopian direction. Really, uh, you know, just very dark and, and very uh, opposite of kind of the original Roddenberry conception of things. And you see writers complain about, you know, how hard it was to write Star Trek. <laughs> Some of the next generation writers would bill on about this because everybody's got to be perfect. And it's like, you know, yeah, but it's, it's possible to tell stories in that context and not everybody has to be perfect for the society to be good. And, you know, I think that, uh, it bothers me that the franchise has kind of gone in that direction. And I don't think, I don't think it's entirely the influence of kind of this dystopian boom. I think, you know, maybe it, it reflects either sort of broad failings in our storytelling or maybe, maybe our world and our society have just gone in that kind of darker direction. I'm, I'm not totally sure. It's kind of an interesting um, idea that you've hit on because it almost seems like, there's this tension between presenting a utopia and then presenting a dystopia. And it almost seems that that fine line, at least narratively between utopia and dystopia is that dystopia almost represents a subversion of utopia, right? So we, we go from Star Trek, the next generation, this very wholesome, you know, even, even when they're presented with really dark stuff, like, Picard becoming a Borg and then sort of transitioning back to human, it's still presented as very positive, very, you know, unmitigatingly positive. And then as you pointed out, as we get into these later iterations, Deep Space Nine um, and Discovery and whatever, it becomes darker. At least Deep Space Nine, if I remember it correctly, was very dark, especially with the war against the Dominion. And then the later iterations, even as you pointed out, became dystopic. So when we talk about utopia and when we talk about dystopia, what is the tension between those two states as far as narrative goes? So the original book, Utopia, is arguably a satire. It is arguably a dystopia itself. Um, there is some controversy in the literary community over this. The values of utopia 
as described in the book, are not the values that Sir Thomas More held. Uh, in fact, they're clearly run against his values in a lot of ways. So there's some, you know, debate among literary scholars about whether utopia is even a utopia or whether it's, it's a dystopia in disguise. And then regardless, it was taken at face value by a lot of people for a lot of years. And it birthed this genre of anti-utopia, which is the precursor of dystopian stuff. Anti-utopias, they're, they're not dystopian in the sense I use the word because they're not set in the future. They're set in mythical lands. So, you know, we went to this undiscovered continent and found this strange place. Uh, Anti-utopia or cactopias, they were sometimes called. I think, you know, some of the most powerful versions of dystopian fiction are ones and as ones that are kind of my favorite in a lot of ways are the tarnished utopia thing where you go to a society that seems utopian. And then as you peel back the layers, it becomes less so. So brave new world in some ways is like that rollerball, I think is, a, is really uh, one of the best examples of, of that kind of story where you have a society in the future where there's no crime, there's no war, there's no poverty and all you've had to give up are a few little unimportant things like freedom. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so I think, yeah, I think people are, are suspicious of utopia. Uh, and I think they, I think they, as writers and as audiences, maybe we, we seek to, to, uh, we seek to undermine them. And then the other thing is, you know, sort of related to that is that if you look at some of the, you know, greatest atrocities in history are really out of uh, utopianism. I mean, you look at ISIS, for instance, and ISIS is, you know, extremely dystopic from the outside, but its intent was to create a utopian society. And you can see the people who want to create utopian societies are often extremely dangerous and have very negative effects on society. I want to, um, yeah, build on that a little too. Um, which is, I think, um, it's easy to tell the story of building a utopia, and it's really hard, I think, to tell the story of being in one, or what, like, is compelling enough to maintain a story through that. Um, and so we get, we get stories, you get stories of, of political movement and of projects, but you don't really get a, like, okay, so we have this thing that's working out pretty well, and we're just, like, have characters floating around um, and maintaining that. Um, and I'm bringing this up because um, there's this quote from uh, Michael Chabon, who is running um, the showrunner uh, for Picard. Um, and uh, quote, you know, personally speaking, my own taste and inclinations, I always said when we were in the earliest versions of the room for the show, if we could have just done a whole show about Picard and the dog on the vineyard in France with no starships, no phasers, the only Romulans would be the two Romulans who work from on the vineyard and no politics, just like there's a fun fair down in the village and they all go and maybe Picard solves a very low stakes mystery in the village. Like someone has stolen the antique bell out of the bell tower or something like that. I would have loved to write that show but I don't think the world's quite ready for a Star Trek show like that. And there's probably maybe not that big of an audience for a Star Trek show like that, end quote. 
I, mean, I think it's a fascinating thing to be given the opportunity, right? When the, the thing you know is you have a character, you have a franchise, and you have a setting, and you can go in any direction. It's like, well, maybe what we need is for it to be dark, to be interesting. Maybe we need for the world to have collapsed and contrasted the character against that. Um, I don't know if that was the right choice. I think um, there is more storytelling to do um, I don't, in the Funfair version, and I uh, dispute his notion that telling a story of things are mostly stable and you solve small mysteries has no politics. I think it has a very different politics. That's kind of interesting. Like you, Kelsey, you almost, you hit on this idea that, you know, the gritty and the edgelord and the dark sort of narrative it almost seems more attractive to the reader as opposed to you know local frenchman and his dog solve village mysteries <laughs> well you know if you you kind of think about what a lot of people genre commentators will point to as a turning point uh toward dystopia in in science fiction and genre is the original watchman and uh well, I uh, and I really uh, I have some problems with that characterization. I think people took the wrong things away from the original Watchmen. So the original Watchmen, for for anybody who somehow missed it, is you know it's basically a st- superhero story in which the superheroes are treated really kind of as real people, like with real psychological issues and and they act like more like how people would act. And the story is, is pretty dystopian, but people sort of pointed that as like the revolution, it was incredibly popular and, and people sort of pointed that in DC comics, uh, which published it especially points at that as like this turning point in which everything got grim and gritty after that, like people wanted grim and gritty stuff. And I think that, you know, I think the reason Watchmen succeeded was not because it was grim and gritty, but because it was grown-up storytelling. And people just, you know, ran with that, though, in, in kind of the wrong direction. And and I think the influence of it, you know, really extended far beyond comic books in the end. I mean, it just, people just, you know, decided that everybody, what everybody wanted was this kind of grim and gritty stuff. And I think that there's, a, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of a clear counterpoint to that. People don't just want that. They they like it if it's well done, if you have a good story to tell, if you have a good psychologically complex story to tell, but it doesn't, you know, I mean, just being grim and gritty is not really necessary to, to engage people and, and pull them in. You look at Guardians of the Galaxy or Ant-Man and it's clear that you can tell a fun, engaging story that's not, that's not, you know, just taking everything in this incredibly dark direction. And also point to, um, I think The Good Place is maybe one of the more interesting takes on what you can do um, using the term extremely broadly in the dystopian genre, um, because that's a dystopia drawn in pastels. Um, The first season uh, is uh, very much uh, draws uh, inspiration from the the classic uh, TV show The Prisoner. There's a whole lot about what does it mean when the world isn't quite how you imagine the world when you feel you're out of place in this world. Um, And the lengths they go with it are really sort of challenging the constraints of the thing, of the universe. And it's a comedy, it's a a comedy in a tight 30 minute slot. 
So it has to uh, rely on different genre conventions, but you manage to get a deep story about what does it mean to be in a system that feels off-putting and to figure out the path to write there. And I think that's maybe one of the more um, interesting and what you can do in the genre. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, great example. I mean, it's such a great point. I mean, the Good Place is just like, you know, it's essentially a, a it's first season, especially, but even throughout, I think it's a, it's a dystopian afterlife, you know, and uh, it's and it's really has meets that fundamental kind of criteria for dystopia is that the, the problem is the system and the problem is that the world that the world you're in is wrong and the antagonist is not you know while you have individual antagonists who pop up during the show it's it's clear that the the problem is not just the antagonists because the antagonists are serving the role they're supposed to serve in the system it's the system that's broken and and yet you know as kelsey said and i completely agree it's like you know you, you can tell a positive story even in a dystopian context uh you know it's just there's just a lot of modes of storytelling and i i feel like to some extent sort of this this dystopian turn in a lot of genre stuff uh it it's multifaceted i mean some of it i think is just laziness they look at something that works and they take the lowest common denominator out of it so you look at the battlestar galactic reboot and say you know what this means is like we should show a lot of people being miserable in space and you know instead of saying you know the reason this works is because it tells really well-rounded stories about really well-developed characters it's kind of interesting because that leads us to the next section of the show which is you know when we talk about dystopia let's you know sort of talk about the development and the creation of it so you've already talked about the system as you know as antagonist you have heroes but the thing that I really struggle with, with a lot of stuff, with Battlestar Galactica, with um, the Hunger Games, Divergent series, is that we're, we're kind of, as the reader, thrust in the middle of a dystopia, right? So Battlestar Galactica kind of opens up. They're already on the run. You know, life is shitty. You know, everything kind of sucks. And then um, you kind of just have to, as a content consumer, just deal with it. But, you know, in terms of creating the dystopia, you know, what is the value of instantly being thrown in it versus sort of dystopia as we're now experiencing it as this slow, gradual process? You know, political parts, the system itself is kind of being slowly built, slowly developed, as opposed to already existing. Well, I think um, something, right, is the, there's the, the frog boiling metaphor, right? There's a sort of hard to, I don't know if an author, and there are authors who are particularly interested in showing a, a slow fall or a decline, um, but it's sort of something you get a lot more of in, in historians writing and you're looking at, well, how did things get so bad? Um, it's something I've been appreciating um, in the Revolutions podcast as they show like, what built to the point where now we talk about it as a revolution and not like we forget about it because it was well handled by power. Um, 
But for the for the genre itself, right, we're, we're writing about these new futures. One of the, I think, keenest examples recently um, is Infinite Detail by uh, Tim Mon, who I mentioned earlier, um, which is, it's, it's again set, you know, about five years from now or functionally five, ten years from now. Um, it's got a lot of technology that reads very familiar and which it's told um, in two parts, both before and after a kind of collapse um, and without getting too much into the, the spoiler of the thing, because it's, I think, really interesting, is it looks, is it shows how things aren't working now. And it shows, and it uses the collapse sort of as a fulcrum point to say what happens when things that aren't working great now stop working later. Um, and it feels, it, it opens feeling very, um, somewhere between mystical or cyberpunky. It's got, um, with, with ghosts and visions and people traveling long times on foot and like, 3D printed gun parts being what's left to replace things. Um, and it manages to tell this story about, about a collapse by piecing together what do people who were children at the time of the collapse remember about the world and what were the adults before the collapse thinking about the durability of this world. It's a really um, interesting example of that sort of near future. And I think it's very informed by the kind of um, a reaction to dystopias where you are thrust in as the reader into a like gestalt dystopia um, with the vague collapse hinted about in the past. And you just have to kind of deal with this formed world. Yeah. I think, you know, one particularly good example of sort of a decline thing, and I am not sure I would call it dystopian per se, because of the nature of the story, but uh, Childhood's End by uh, Arthur C. Clarke, which is really follows the change in society over generations. Uh, and, you know, I say it's not necessary. I don't think it's, it's probably qualifies for my def definition of dystopia because it's really, there's a lot of external stuff and, and scientific causes of the things that happen in the story, but really it opens with, first contact with aliens and then traces the effects of that first contact over generations. And you see that society changing and then you see the ultimate kind of fate of humanity that sort of plays out in that. And there, there are stories where, you know, you sort of track that novel development, some new thing happens and then, and then, you know, you track how the society declines. And in fact, a lot of the extremist uh, dystopias tend to be like that because they are, specifically trying to mobilize people against this thing. So they want to, they want to give you a credible story of how it goes. So the Turner diaries or the John Franklin letters, or they, they start at the beginning of the end, you know, they start with the, the uh, collapse of, of the old order and, and track you as things get worse and worse. Um, a lot of dystopian stuff will thrust you in more, more infinite details on my my to read list i've got uh, so much of the stuff it's uh, unbelievable but i'm super interested in that um you know a lot of the yeah so it's, it's it's sort of easier especially if you're doing kind of the one joke dystopia you know like logan's run for instance you know you just like take people in there thrust them into it and then and then uh logan's run the book not the movie uh does take you back and tell you what happened so uh, there's, there's a kind of a format where you're sort of thrust into this strange new world and you are 
confronted with the things that are wrong with it and the conditions that exist in that world. And then you do, uh, then you find a way to go back and explain where it came from. Uh, in the, you know, and to some extent, uh, the new Hunger Games book, which is a prequel, is is kind of an effort to do that to sort of go back and say, okay, well, here's it's it's after the the big collapse, but before the institutionalization of the Hunger Games in the in the way that it's seen in the series. So it's it's to some extent, you know, it's a kind of understandable narrative choice. You thrust somebody into this strange, horrific world, and then and then walk them back to see how you got there like you create a mystery around how it got there and then you go back and explain that mystery and and that's a very attractive narrative choice in a lot of ways if you can pull it off uh and then uh walking somebody through the decline is something i i'm just saying this anecdotally again i'm just saying it's kind of off the top of my head as i'm thinking about it but really the extremist oriented dystopias are really the ones that take you through the decline ones that are taking you to a future race war necessity of race war or or that kind of collapse uh i most often see those kinds of narratives in in more extremist uh or more racially oriented things where racial problems are shown to increase gradually over time. This is kind of interesting because it almost seems like most dystopian fiction, however, however that narrative is crafted is very, very sort of linear in its execution, A to B to C, even if it's shrouded in mystery, you still end up, you know, at whatever point the author or creator wants you to be at. And so as, as, as a reader, as a content consumer, does that sort of change our understanding of how tyranny or dystopia becomes reality? Because it don't, <clears throat> cause reality isn't linear. It's nonlinear and it sort of, you know, happens unevenly and in fits and starts. Whereas in a narrative, it's often very clean, very A to B to C or C to B to A but it's still, at least as far as I understand, you know, very sort of linear. So sort of expand on that. What does that do to the reader and the reader's expectations of reality and sort of an emerging dystopia? So there are, are lots of, there are a fair number of examples of kind of nonlinear storytelling in these things, but generally speaking, uh, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, uh, you know, dystopian novel is a form of political polemic. And so you're out to make a point and you need to make that point. And so you can have things that are dystopian flavored, like Twin Peaks, where there's not, it's not out to make that point. And so it can afford to be much less linear. Uh, but if you look at The Prisoner, obviously, uh, you know, kind of a, a huge a huge work in the dystopian genre. The prisoner is not a linear story in, in most ways. And it makes its points. It, it, you know, the message of the prisoner I think is, is actually pretty clear despite the fact that it's told in a very winding and nonlinear way. And Watchmen, I, I have a lot of critiques about the HBO Watchmen series, but I think that also, uh, you know, was, was somewhat of a success in, in telling, is telling a, story and making certain points in a way that was not strictly a linear storytelling exercise. Well, I think something um, 
two, about authors have the freedom of knowing what events matter um, and being able to present them in a way where they can build them or they can trickle them in or they can feed them. Um, as people who are just living through history, um, it's really hard to know exactly or how to piece together um, what is happening. I would be remiss to mention, right, we are recording this on, on Thursday and the, the 30th, and this morning the president uh, tweeted the possibility of him shifting and delaying the election um, and then tweeted also about a pizza place on Long Island. It's hard to know what would be um, if that will still feel as pertinent or relevant or as much of a crisis, um, even a week from now as it felt this morning. Um, I have a feeling that one will stand out, that will feel like an event, but we, but there have been many events. We are in a long time where there are lots of events that could be the question, that could be called as the, the point of challenge, um, that sort of will be looked back on as this is when things fell out of control. This is when the existing order fully collapsed. Um, it's hard to know that living through it. It's much easier to write it either as an author with the clarity of narrative or as a historian with the uh, benefit of time and distance. I mean, that's, that's such a great point. I mean, reality really could use some editing. Uh, uh, you know, it's just, yeah, I mean, and, and really we're just in like uh, this situation now where where things are just coming from every direction and it's just, you know, the things that matter so much one week, you know, are superseded the next week by something else. And, and that state of constant competing narrative is, is part of the, the dystopia that we're currently living in. Uh, you know, there are certainly examples of dystopian uh, stories that uh, include that go a lot further and you know one that I'm thinking about that walks you through the development of the dystopia in a what I think is a pretty flawed way is uh, Neil Stevenson's latest fall or dodge in hell and uh, that book is extremely long <laughs> and it actually sort of launches in the first two or 300 pages. I like highly recommend as one of some of the best dystopian writing I've ever seen and extremely pertinent to things that are happening now. Uh, and then, but then he keeps going and after about 350 pages, it, it just starts to be too much and it goes in directions that perhaps some readers such as myself would not have liked to, to see it go in. So, I mean, I think as a writer, you know, the safer choice and, and not, I, I don't mean safer in kind of disparaging way. I think it's, it's a, it can be the smart choices is, you know, to have that kind of economy of storytelling. And so, you know, the reason that a dystopian novel can move people politically in some part is because it does edit out all the, all the crap, all the tweets, all the, you know, cancel culture or whatever, you know, stupid sideshow thing happens to be going on at any given day and, and really sort of like lasers in on one aspect of it that, that is the aspect that you want to talk about. I, I kind of want to expand on that point because like you make a great point, which is when we read about dystopia, it's very, you know, not ordered, but sort of clean without the daily insanity. 
<laughs> so I, I'm sort of curious, like, how would you factor in like Twitter, social media, the things that kind of, um, for lack of a better description, are kind of like an asylum, kind of like, it's just insane. Like it's, how would you factor that in into describing dystopia? That sort of, because it, I want to go sort of Twitter kind of aids in this constant creation of crisis, but yet, you know, we don't really, you know, when the historians look back, they won't necessarily factor in Twitter, but rather, you know, look at the president's behavior or whoever's behavior. And I still want to talk about my, my novel now, but I can't until it's actually out there for people to read it. Uh, I, t- I tackle this a bit in my novel. Um, also, Fall, the book I just mentioned, the good part of Fall, uh, talks about social media a lot. Uh, it's really kind of the first sophisticated treatment I've seen of social media, except for the very first treatment of social media, which was in a 1928 novel, uh, short, short story novella uh, by E.M. Forster. And it's called The Machine Stops, and it describes uh, extremely, you know, spooky accuracy kind of describes our not only social media, but also like social media in the age of quarantine. Uh, You know, it's like 1928, and he's writing about screens, and he's writing about viral content and, and, and people, you know, interacting solely through screens and not seeing each other. It's, it's a fascinating story. It's really kind of amazing, amazingly prescient, uh, written before the, the concept of, of, you know, anything resembling social media as we know it now could, could possibly have existed. Even the enabling technologies didn't exist. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I highly recommend it. It's called The Machine Stops. And I'll have to check that out. So I want to talk, actually, I can talk about the short story I wrote because it was a short story and it's live. Um, and that was uh, Airplane Mode. Um, that's the one you you mentioned earlier, Sina. And it's um, plausibly in the dystopian genre. It's a, it's a stretch if you count the dystopian system as um, the constant uh, readiness of nuclear alert, then sure. Um, but... It's also called airplane mode because what I wanted to do was write a nuclear apocalypse story without people being able to check what was happening on Twitter. Um, And so I had them all on the plane Um, and then I had the internet go out. Um, And one of the things, um, again, it's a, it's a, it is short both in length of writing and in chronology. It is a story that takes place over several hours. And most of that is really, um, there's really only a, like an hour of intensity in there at all. Um, but in in telling it that way, I thought it was really um, important to see if you could get characters to react without having um, the experience of being on social media and speculating there sort of dominated and then to sort of end in a world where as, if that exists, it's in a drastically reduced capacity. Um, and I think... Um, I don't know how you can really replicate the feeling of watching a crisis unfold on Twitter in a story or in a kind of fiction. Um, there's been there's been attempts to sort of bring it up, but one of the things that feels right, and then Twitter is a genre, um, a style of writing unto itself, and there's a very strong emphasis on the immediacy 
of information and then the immediacy and then you're speculating about the near future and that near future can be five minutes it can be an hour it can be a week you're really sometimes looking beyond that but um when something happens right the when the news broke this morning or that the president decided that he was thinking about um moving the election or if he could move the election then you have a whole flurry of speculative writing tossed into the void imagining like well do the rules exist what are the mechanisms of it and it's fascinating because you get to see people sort of as authors of their own story and their own history but also grappling with how they understand rules and constraints and norms and power um and i hope there's stories that do capture that in the future it's a really interesting way to experience what does it feel like to live in a crisis um, and then also the other equally but less visible part of it is what is it experience to live with the idea that the crisis has kind of happened, but you still have to like go to work. Um, you still have to kind of muddle through whatever is happening after it. Um, and that's what you can get off of that experience. Um, and also I totally understand why authors leave it out. I will say uh, that the first third of Neil Stevenson's fall does a pretty good job of talking about a lot of this stuff. Um, the problem with the book is that it then goes off and it sets up a whole bunch of really interesting stuff that is really very direct commentary on uh, social media and how it's used and our experience of living with it and then goes completely off in another much less interesting direction for the second two thirds of the book. So first two thirds though man i would have i would wholeheartedly recommend a whole book based on the first two thirds of that book so i I maybe want to switch footing to something that is featured in every every piece of work that we've mentioned right so battlestar galactica uh ladder star trek um hunger games turner diaries and that common thread between those works seems to be violence. And, you know, how does dystopian fiction sort of change our understanding of political violence? Does it, does it you know, sort of present it as redemptive? Or is it, you know, violence, it's political violence, and the ends are political, so it's justified? So I, I'm kind of struggling in thinking and sort of understanding the concept of violence and the execution of violence within dystopian fiction. Okay. I was going to let Kelsey go first cause I can wax on about this at some, some length. Uh, but essentially there are a couple of different ways that violence can play out in, in dystopian fiction. And so, you know, there is, effective violence and there's ineffective violence so some dystopias are so overwhelming that violence against the system is pointless and in some dystopias it is redemptive as so in the hunger games you're able to defeat the system but in 1984 you can't um in you know just to uh in rollerball and and other kinds of spectacle dystopias the human impulse to violence is diverted into entertainment uh and sometimes that violence spills over as in the hunger games or in the running man the violence of the entertainment spills over into violence against the system that is ultimately redemptive to a greater or lesser extent um but a lot of dystopian 
stories are about the futility of fighting the system, uh, which is why where the preventative piece comes in. And that's why, you know, that study that found people were more inclined to consider violence against the system uh, after reading a dystopian piece, I think is because that, you know, you, you create a really good dystopian, really good classic dystopian story. The system is so overwhelmingly powerful that it's too late to be violent against it. So in some cases, uh, in, in many cases, the implication is that action should have been taken to prevent the system from happening, action up to and including violent resistance of, of where the government is. Yeah, so I think that's a really good, absolutely a really good look at like what the, the genre's relation to violence. And I think something that is um, fundamental to talking about violence as the centerpiece of how you either um, do redemptive violence to escape the system, as you might see in your Hunger Games, try uh, violence and fail, as you will see in other um, stories, or have a warning that violence should have been done earlier to prevent this happening, um, is it narrows the range of possibilities of other actions. It has a, a narrowing focus on violence is the kind of thing that would have changed this. Um, and so you don't see um, in the Hunger Games, and who knows what uh, when the new one comes out and it sets how you get to the Hunger Games at the end of it, but you could imagine, right, that if the whole system is defined around a carefully guarded and maintained scarcity at the behest of a um, military power that sort of corrals the rest of the universe into, or the rest of the nation into subservience, that there were earlier steps where he'd like modest redistribution at any earlier point might have been the thing that you do instead to avoid getting this weird violent spectacle at the end of it. Um, and I think, uh, and the violence is the obvious example there, but there's other ones where you look at like, what does it mean to interact in the world differently and to solve problems in other ways? And that gets drowned out. Um, the idea of solutions that do not immediately uh, stem from violence is somewhat missing. Um, one of the books, which is recent sci-fi, I don't think the author would call it, um, dystopian, but it's a bandwidth. And then there's a series of novels by Elliot Pepper. And it deals with a sort of um, like the arc of the first one is like lobbying against the backdrop of climate change. And the the fundamental action that ends up happening, right, is um, like weird negotiated, like imposed terms of service on an internet provider that mandate climate change. It's a it's an interesting way to take it, but it imagines what other levers of power and interaction might be pressed. Um, violence happens in the story, but it's not violence that ultimately decides the arc of the story. And I think, you know, there's also uh, really, there's this subgenre of dystopian fiction that's called spectacle, that I call spectacle dystopias. And so that's something like The Hunger Games or Rollerball or The Running Man, where society is explicitly oriented around some performative violence. And it's a concept that really goes back to kind of the perception of how the Colosseum worked in the Roman Empire. Um, but what those stories offer, those stories are often intended by their creators as being polemic against violence. 
and they are often received by audiences as polemic for violence. So Rollerball, in particular, uh, was a movie that that is a, that its creators and and writers are very explicitly clear. It's an anti-violence movie, uh, and yet people saw that movie, and then people called up the the production company and said, "We want to license this game so we can play it ourselves." And this is super violent game that is the centerpiece of the story. And they're like, "Oh my God, you completely missed the point of this." One kind of more interesting and recent example of how violence in dystopia can be just wildly decontextualized in really unproductive ways is The Purge. So The Purge, it's kind of a difficult example to talk about because it's, you know, very firmly B-movies in a lot of ways. It's not super sophisticated storytelling, but if you're paying it even a little bit of attention, it's pretty clear that the the purge itself, which if you've been living on Mars, is uh, you know the conceit of this is that for twelve hours every once in one day every year, all crime is legal and everybody gets all the violence out of their systems, and then theoretically the society is a utopia all the rest of the time. And so, even from the first movie, it's clear that the purge is bad, and the purge is being used to like control people and to control particularly like control minority populations. Uh, and it, it, that becomes it becomes more and more overt and explicit as the franchise has continued. Uh, you go back and you see how the purge came about. You go, it really kind of drills into kind of the racial component of this. I mean that the the purge as a as a story element, the creators of the purge were really acting out a kind of eugenics, uh, kill poor people, kill minorities let them put them in a situation where you encourage them to kill each other and then, and then claim that every, all the other problems in society have been fixed. And so the, the purge movies are weird in that they're, they're sort of a weirdly exaggerated version of a common problem in dystopian stories about violence, which is that they glamorize the violence at the same time they're condemning the violence. And what you see as a result is that people like, you know, we've had a few incidents now where people have sort of like acted out the purge in real life in some ways, often in kind of the marginalized communities that the purge is explicitly targeting. Like, I mean, the, the story of the purge, and, and it could be clearer at the beginning, but after a couple of movies, it's very clear. The story of the purge is a story of like, you know, wealthy white men trying to control minorities by setting them against each other. And it's, it's, the, just the worst irony that that people would then the kids in inner cities sometimes will pick up the purge and be like oh we're having a purge and they'll go out and, and do something fortunately not at huge scales but there have been enough a couple of incidents like this where you know just the 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 thing that you're critiquing in the dystopia somehow ends up being attractive to to the viewer in a way it's not supposed to that's an interesting idea that you've you've kind of honed in on JM, which is the aesthetic of dystopia, the the image, the the imagery, the because I if I remember the purge the movies, it's very intense imagery wise. The story's kind of you know as you mentioned, it's kind of B, it's kind of schlocky, it's Frank Grillo killing a bunch of people, whatever. Um, but it, it almost seems like the aesthetic is you know louder and more internalized than the narrative and sort of the point that the creator is trying to make. So 
with dystopia, I mean, is there, what is that tension between aesthetic image and then sort of that vibe versus what the author is trying to get across? I mean, at its simplest, it's sort of like, uh, I mean, there's, there's particularly in spectacle dystopias, there's an inherent tension, which is that you are rooting for the protagonist to defeat the bad system, but you're also rooting for them to win the game. So you want Katniss to win the Hunger Games in addition to defeating the Hunger Games as a concept. Um, you want Arnold Schwarzenegger to win the Running Man in addition to defeating the Running Man as, as a concept. Uh, and, and rollerball is, is really actually, I mean, if you're looking for kind of like, I mean, first I'll say, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of talking trash about the purge, but I actually, I, I love the purge movies. I'm really interested in what they're doing. I think they're really interesting in a lot of ways, but they're B movies. And so rollerball was like the art film version of the purge in a lot of ways where you have this very, uh, aesthetically carefully presented spectacle and a message that that spectacle, that violent spectacle is bad. But at the same time, you're you're rooting for the protagonist who is trying to quit. The the over basic story in rollerball is that the star rollerball player of this very violent game, Jonathan E, wants to retire, and the system won't let him retire because well, I'm sorry, they want him to retire. I've got it backwards. So the system wants him to retire. He doesn't want to retire because he loves the game. He loves going out and like basically like breaking heads, and the system wants him to retire for reasons that become clear as, as things go on. And so you see him, he's struggling against the system that's trying to deny him his freedom, but at the same time, he's fighting for the right to continue in this extremely violent game. And the, you end up rooting for him to triumph over the system, but you also are rooting for him to win the game. And the two narratives converge in such a way that at the end of the movie, what you're seeing is like for, for him to defeat the system, he also has to win the game. And so it's natural that you're going to have conflicted feelings about that. And you're going to get some weird kind of counterintuitive responses from audiences, I think. And then you get, um, not that it's like ever explicitly like framed or sold as, as a dystopia, but like battle angel Alita has, has rollerball functionally as a game in it. Um, and it's, just like a faithful loving tribute to the idea of spectacle violence. Um, and it's, the world is, is there's a, there's a floating city where all the rich people live. There's uh, cyborg harvesting and organ harvesting. It's got its elements to it, but it never really takes the time to go deeper into how does this get to be this way? What does it mean to be existing in the system? It's very much, you are watching um, protagonists rise through the ranks um, and then become the very best at spectacle violence and therefore do and therefore be able to challenge the system and that's a that's a faithful tribute that came out a few years ago um, I think there's uh, just briefly something to um, the notion right that we get rollerball in the mid 70s and we get uh, battle angel Lita now and they're both sort of arrive at an era where like we don't really know what does work but we know what we like to watch or we know what kind of we at least know the spectacle that we can sink into to get our way through uh otherwise dystopic times and i'll say you can see it's kind of interesting because there are i can think of two examples where you can see this problem 
tension play out within the same franchise. So the first one is Rollerball. So there's, as some some of you may be aware, there is a uh, two th- early 2000s reboot of Rollerball, which completely missed the point of the original Rollerball. Is essentially like, you know, this game is cool. Let's, let's play this game. And it really uh, was a terrible movie. Um, more kind of, I think, a way you can really see it kind of play out up and down in a franchise is the Death Race 2000 franchise. So Death Race 2000 was a Roger Corman movie that came out. It was actually made to steal Rollerball's thunder. It came out, it was, <laughs> Roger Corman saw that Rollerball was coming out and he decided he wanted to do his own version of it. So he rushed this thing out and it came out like a month earlier than Rollerball. And Death Race 2000 is essentially, I almost, I'm, willing to guess a lot of people anybody who's stuck with us this long has seen death race 2000 it's basically uh, a death race across america in which drivers like get extra points for running over babies and the elderly and uh you know it's just like the the winner is the person who survives the race and it was very satirical and the original death race 2000 sort of fit my definition of a dystopia because it uh because it's really about fighting the system, ultimately, uh, even in a very ham-handed and cornball way. And then, uh, so there have been a number of subsequent versions of the Death Race franchise that have come out since then, including a a sequel that was a reboot slash sequel that was done by Roger Corman very recently. But a bunch of, there were a bunch of really kind of joyless versions of Death Race 2000, you know, one of which starred Jason Statham. And that should probably tell you most of what you need to know about what the movie's like. It's basically, you're just in it to watch Jason Statham kick a bunch of ass. And the, the ultimate kind of social context just really falls by the wayside. Uh, And then, you know, Roger Corman sort of did this most recent version of it, kind of brought it back to its roots in in terms of being a social commentary. And actually the most recent one that it was a Netflix movie is called Death Race 2050. And it also does get into uh, some of the social media stuff we were talking about earlier. Interesting. So I want to maybe switch footing to the audience. So as audience members, as people who consume a lot of dystopia, dystopia narrative, you know, um, you know, whether it's death race, rollerball, the purge, um, hunger games, etc. cetera. Um, my question is, you know, does consuming that media, does it sort of push the audience to rationalize and accept dystopia in reality as an inevitability because it almost seems I I know we kind of talked touched on it in the beginning of the show and I kind of want to develop it a little more here but it almost seems like when all you consume is dystopia when it's all that's produced is dystopian narratives that eventually it sort of alters the audience to begin to accept dystopia as as an eventual outcome in reality um, and I, I think like that kind of plays out on Twitter as every time that something stupid happens politically, um, every time the president does something or the administration does something goofy and it's really negative, you know, people start tweeting out dumbest dystopia or, you know, um, you know, I, I'm kind of guilty of this too. Like it's just kind of using humor as saying, oh, you know, haha, this is kind of funny. This is kind of the inevitability here, whatever. But 
you know, does, does consuming so much dystopia narratives kind of push the audience into accepting the inevitability of dystopia and reality? I mean, I think it raises it as a possibility. And I don't think that consuming dystopia makes accepting dystopia as what the future holds inevitable. But I think when dystopia is the sort of only media consumed, it makes it seem like it there aren't other futures really. I think one of the things um, that I've thought about, right, with a, uh, with watching or reading, um, especially like nuclear, like post-apocalyptic stuff or where you get the post-apocalyptic stuff is I didn't want to read stuff where like the road, like Cormac McCarthy's the road is sort of the only outcome, right? Where you have that or you have Mad Max and everything is varying degrees of like deserty warlord and bad. Um, and it's one of the things I think about is I've floated the possibility of like expanding airplane mode to a broader narrative is what, do you tell for after that kind of story? Because not that it is going to be good, right? I don't think there's a way to tell an optimistic post-nuke story. Um, and there's really, when you get to, when you're talking about post-collapse kind of things, or um, dystopia is a genre you stumble upon because it's really likely that everything is just deeply shitty in that way, or in some way that the systems are all falling apart. But I think it's important to kind of tell stories that get um, and write and think about stories where futures do not have to be the worst of all possible outcomes um, where there is some kind of life and it's maybe different than the clean cut. Well, everything is immediately the worst it will ever be. And it's only going to decline from there. I'll just uh, throw out as a semi hopeful post-apocalyptic story, uh, Jericho, the TV series of, from a couple of years ago was, not certainly things were pretty grim throughout much of that, but it kind of moved through some of the aftermath and crisis in interesting ways and, and was a show that uh, I thought ultimately, I found it a little hard to get into it at first. And then by, you know, after a couple of episodes, though, I was really absorbed in kind of the storytelling, the potential they found in that. As far as uh, Cena's question, I think, so, you know, I am somebody who, read almost nothing but dystopia, read and watched almost nothing but dystopia for almost two years straight working on this book project. So I guess I'm pretty qualified to address this. Uh, I think that, I don't think that you you become accepting of it. I think there's a possibility, I think, that the, the sort of, what I would worry about more in terms of people getting acclimated to it is, sort of dystopian having like a continual series of dystopian settings against stories that don't really have anything to say about the society. And that's one of the things I worry about, you know, like the maze, the maze runner you mentioned, I'm not sure maze runner even actually qualifies as a dystopia because there's really no kind of political content. It's kind of a survival story, but basically there's a lot of stuff out there now. Uh, I think more now than in the past, than that really uh, uses the language of dystopia uh, even when the stories themselves are not dystopian. And so you get a lot of these, you know, people get used to seeing, if you get used to seeing stories against set in a broken system where people aren't fighting that system, then that's where I would worry about complacency. And that's where I worry about this kind of YA dystopia 
genre, uh, I think is, you know, if it's not clear about what it is you're fighting, uh, then it's harder to, to really get a message out. I mean, ultimately the, the genre as it exists, you know, over time, almost always the, the dystopian work is intended to make you want to fight against having that future happen, whether that's a positive you know, whether the, the morality of the story is good or bad. And that's why the origins of the genre really were driven a lot by racism. Uh, the, the thing that really fueled the growth of the dystopian genre in the United States was racism. They were a, just a series of racist dystopias about first about, uh, the civil war and about, uh, what would happen if, if slaves were freed. And then later about Chinese immigration that really, uh, uh just that, in particular, there were just a series of books about uh, Chinese immigration as a stealth war, uh, similar to the kind of creeping Sharia rhetoric you see today. And uh, these, I mean, the message of these stories was reprehensible, but they were clearly and sometimes very explicitly, even in, you know, the foreword or the afterword of the stories as like, you know, I'm writing this because I want to stop this from happening. So I think not, I think there, you can find some examples, particularly, I think maybe more in post-apocalyptic genre than in the dystopian proper genre where people are kind of vicariously, you know, you see a lot of ripoffs of Mad Max where, you know, people just are kind of like, want to vicariously experience the anarchy and they're not interested in, in kind of having a nuanced story. And so I think stuff like that, I guess, where you, where you don't have a clear political motive and message is where I think there's some risk of desensitizing people. Does, so my question is then, you know, how does dystopia then right now, has it hurt our politics? Like, I know, obviously, like, the Turner Diaries and sort of the resurgence of certain white nationalist, white supremacist narratives have obviously sort of harmed our politics. But, you know, has dystopian narratives kind of hurt our, hurt our politics in different ways? Or is it more, you know, dystopian, dystopian narratives can actually be beneficial that you look at something, you read something, then you're like, I don't want that. I don't want the purge. I want something better. You know, what is, what is the harm and, and the benefit to our politics of having dystopian narratives? Sure. Um, so I think, um, I think the, the most concrete, well, the, there's two big harms to focus on. And I think one is, Um, when the dystopia is one of those like cautionary tales about like what happened um, if like this, the, the, the awful fantasies and the like the very explicit racist violence of the Turner diaries in that genre. um, I think it's harmful to that. Those texts activate by uh, portraying um, something that is by, by they're very clearly creating and advocating for a horrible violence. I think that's awful in and of itself. And that when it calls for an activism that is like deliberately harmful to a specific people, um, awful um, and, and bad to the body politic. I think the other thing is that when people 
receive visions of the future that are only dystopic um, and then also find themselves living in times that are dystopic in a different way, or at least um, underwhelming is the mildest possible way to put the present condition, but where the government feels unresponsive, um, where needs uh, go wholly unmet despite the means being available to meet them. Um, and it feels as though the power is detached and the system is unfeeling and uncaring. Um, and if you read dystopia that resembles that, and then that becomes you, I think what you get is deactivation of people as political. Um, and I think there's uh, space um, outside the genre to really have people um, to tell stories that get people interested in better futures and in building actively building better futures. Um, and then the other thing I just want to throw in right is I think the, uh, the most direct harm to the biopolitic that we're sort of seeing circulating um, through the world right now is not uh, dystopia specifically, but is conspiracy theorists, which imagine um, deep nefarious purposes guiding uh, the actions of government of a government seen as unresponsive. And I think um, when you get to like the QAnon and that whole space, I think that's more meaningfully toxic um, right now than dystopia itself. I, I would agree with that. Um, I think there's also, however, uh, there is a, a pretty substantial overlap between kind of dystopian concepts and stories and conspiracy concepts and stories. Uh, for instance, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion uh, was plagiarized in part from a dystopian novel. Uh, and and has a lot of the qualities of that. The, the thing that conspiracy, certain kinds of conspiracy theories, uh, such as QAnon um, and dystopian narratives, share is the overwhelming nature of the corruption of society. And I think those are are, are extremely problematic. I mean, on the sort of broader question of dystopia and society, what I would say is that I can give you a lot of examples about of ways that dystopian fiction has had a negative effect on society. And I cannot give you a lot of clear examples of ways that it's had a positive effect. Uh, so for instance, the Chinese immigration dystopias I mentioned before were not so much, uh, in the Turner diaries mold inspiring violence against Chinese immigrants. Instead, they shaped the, the creation of laws to ban Chinese immigration. Uh, the, the, the arguments, the framing of immigration as an invasion in these books was directly uh, played out in the courts, uh, in the court arguments about the Chinese exclusion act. And, and so uh, you know, similarly, the Civil War books, you know, really kind of helped. They didn't directly encourage violence. They helped frame the secession movement as noble, as a noble adventure that was necessary in order to preserve freedom. And so there are these certainly a bunch of examples where books are, are written with bad intent and then succeed in having bad intent. I personally would put uh, Atlas shrugged in that category. Um, but then there's, then there's a secondary category of books that are and, and movies that are made with good intent that have unintended bad intent. So rollerball or the purge will give the purge producers credit for having good intent. I think you, you probably debate that, but 
you know, uh, things, things that, or the Hunger Games, for instance, as we saw in the study, uh, the people who read that excerpt from the Hunger Games were more likely to consider violence against the system. So there are certainly things you can talk about that, that in dystopian genre, and again, I say this as a fan of it, uh, there are ways that this dystopian genre is hugely helpful in, in framing and understanding social problems. I mean, personally, the prisoner deeply shaped me when I was uh, saw it as a young man, uh, really influenced my feelings about sort of individuality and, and the role of people in society. Um, not necessarily in the ways that Patrick McGoon intended necessarily, uh, but they did. And, uh, you know, similarly, 1984 has obvious utility for us in trying to understand what's happening in the world today. But at the same time, 1984 has been co-opted by the people that 1984 is about. Uh, so you now see these, you know, alt-right idiots, proto-fascists out there quoting Orwell as if Orwell's on their side. So... <laughs> It's it's a tough. I I love the genre and I am I like it and I have written a novel into it myself. That's how much I like it and how much I think that it can be a useful and powerful tool. But at the same time, when I look at the genre, the history of the genre over time, I I have serious questions about whether it's ultimately good for society. That's a good segue into the last question I have, which is. What is the future of dystopia as fiction, as reality? Like you, you, we've touched a lot, a lot of, we've touched on a various um, set of topics here and it's like, <laughs> none of the futures seem very happy, um, <laughs> which is, it's okay. Um, but in your guys' view, what is, what is the future of dystopia as fiction, as narrative, as content? And then what is the future of dystopia as the currently lived reality. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think we'll have to reconvene in November to talk about that, <laughs> maybe, uh, as far as the reality. I think that the genre uh, is in a period of explosive growth and that that's gonna continue. I mean, the Netflixization of, of Hollywood production virtually guarantees that dystopias will continue. Netflix is literally making dystopias faster than I can watch them. So uh, it's, it's, it's just, there's just a huge amount of growth. I think that I expect whether that is a product of where we are in a society or if it's more of a cultural boom bust cycle, uh, maybe a little bit of column a and a little bit from column B. Uh, I think that, you know, it, it the history of the dystopian genre probably as far as the nature of what what there is to come the history really illustrates what we can expect and the if you search for dystopia on netflix it also illustrates what we can expect which is that there's 30 terrible ones for everyone that's kind of good <laughs> so i think also as a genre i think the most interesting things that will be coming out of it in the um, future is really what people, um, especially who are living through this moment, are imagining. Um, and uh, I don't know about y'all, I've had a ton of free time to think about what different futures might look like. Um, and I'm very curious to see especially what Zoomers do who are dealing with all of this um, 
like either as they're like in high school or just just like entering um, adulthood, and they're also doing that with the looming climate crisis and uh, not even the imagination um, that of like oh well here is a decade or two that was kind of stable um, where things were pretty good and seemed trending upwards in most directions. Um, and so I'm really, really curious to see what young people do with it and are honestly probably already writing um, in TikTok or in YouTube or in uh, Fortnite Meshinema or, you know, stuff that I don't see. Um, and I think the other thing, right, is it's going to be, um, we're going to see more voices in it. We're going to see a wider range of concerns expressed. Um, and that's partly because uh, there's, the cost barrier of production um, in a lot of these forms, especially um, in short video is lower. And uh, certainly writing has really never been, um, the cost has never been lower to write something. And hopefully we get visions of futures and not of uh, all sorts of futures, including good ones, but especially also we'll see bad ones from people who uh, were always cast as the victims or the threat dystopia was built to guard against rather than um, the authors of the stories and narratives within them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, on that note, um, I, I want to thank my guests before we leave. So uh, please thank JM Berger, Kelsey Atherton. Um, we're going to have a bunch of reading material posted with the show. Uh, again, guys, thank you so much. Uh, that was really enlightening. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. <laughs>